to another episode of the Criterion Quest, a continuing podcast series looking at important films and contemporary classics. My name is Chris and I'm joined as always by my wonderful co-host Lee. Hello. And we are back with a Jacques Becker double feature. Yes. Yes. Um, but before we get into that, um, we're going to hit spine num- with this double episode, we're hitting spine number 271, which means it's time for a look back. Uh, this is a... Uh, this is something we, uh, Tom and I used to do, and when we sort of hit the end of a group of ten, we'd kind of look back at what was our favourite and least favourite in the out of the few films that we'd watched. Um, but uh, since Lee's first episode jumping on as the host was uh, Fat Girl, which was 2.59, and she missed out, uh, Claire jumped in to co-host for Shortcuts, we're going to swap those two out. <laughs> and so, we'll, uh, the ten we'll look back on, we've got uh, Fat Girl... Fanny and Alexander box set, um, so just lumping all of them together. Mm-hmm. Uh, the King of Kings, uh, Kagamusha, Youth of the Beast, Fighting Elegy, Cask Door, and Touche Par and Grisby. So there could be some spoilery stuff in here. So, yes. one more time, we got Fat Girl, <laughs> Fanny and Alexander, The King of Kings, Kagamusha, Youth of the Beast, Fighting Elegy, and then uh, the two Jacques Becker films, Cask Door and Touche Par Agresby. Okay. So do you want me to pick my favourite? Yeah, I'll, 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 least, I'll start off with uh, the one that I like the least, uh, and I'm pretty sure you're in cahoots with me here of The King of Kings. Yes. I can't remember that. Can yeah. you give me a quick reminder? Well, that was the that uh, was? 1927 Silent Jesus film. Oh! Oh, that's why I don't remember it. Yeah. It's pretty forgettable. Well, we did get an email from a listener saying that like they were mar- they were amazed that we actually made it all the way through that film, and they're like, fucking more power to you. They're like, <laughs> we tried and we got 20 minutes in and had to turn it off. So, <laughs> people were impressed that we even just actually watched the whole thing. So, yeah, yeah that thing, that was rough. And that I was rough. did not like it. No. Um, yeah, for me, I think, in terms of discussion of the episodes and stuff, Fat Girl was amazing. Just the actual trying to break down that sucker. Yes. Um, But in terms of actual film, uh, I think I'm going to have to go Fanny and Alexander. Yeah. I I was actually... I I have a soft spot for Fat Girl. I don't know if it's because it's the first one I took over and I actually really enjoyed discussing the challenge of it. Mm -hmm. It was a really challenging film to Mm. have to break down and full-on content. And I, I really enjoyed that podcast, but probably not. I like Youth of the Beast. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. totally, yeah, Mr. Fat Cheeks. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah. That was fun. It was hmm. colourful. I love the style. I just, yeah, that was really fun for me. Yeah, I'd give, like, a nice little asterisk with Kagamusha and uh, Cask Door, actually. Ah. Yeah, a little bit of a spoiler. Interesting. <laughs> hmm, but, um, well, shit, on that note, do we just get into the film? So, uh, as usual with the doubles, we're going to talk about um, the first one, Cask Door, first, and then move on to Touche Power Grisby. But, uh, so I'll start her off with, uh, the Criterion synopsis. Jacques Becker lovingly evokes the belly poc Parisian denouement in this classic tale of doomed romance. When gangster, when gangster's mole Marie, uh, falls, <laughs> sorry, I'm still just... Gangster's mole? Mole, sorry. What's a mole? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I'm assuming, like, a nicer word for prostitute, or oh, like, you know... Yes. You know... Woman of the night? Kind of. Well, I mean, we'll get into it a bit, but was, like, Lekka kind of her pimp to some degree as well? Like... Ah. Yeah. But, well, anyway, when Gangster's mole Marie, uh, falls for reformed criminal Manda, their passion incites an underworld rivalry that... 
leads inexorably to treachery and tragedy. With poignant, nuanced performances and sensuous black and white photography, Cask Door, Golden Marie, is, is Becca at the height of his cinematic powers, a romantic masterpiece. Mm. So, uh, obviously, I'm, I'm guessing you're like me, not that familiar with Jacques Becker films. <laughs> no, but did you say that you have had them in the Criterion before now? I'm actually not sure if we've actually watched a Jacques Becker film or not oh, before. Okay. No, it was the actor in the second film that you said that you'd watched. Yes, and also uh, Simone um, Signoret, the actress in Cask Door. I've seen her in... Um, the amazing um, Henri-Georges Clouseau film Diabolique. Oh. She plays uh, the um, like the femme fatale and that who's like conniving and scheming to murder the teacher. She's yeah. very femme fatale. Yes, she is. She is incredible in this film. Um, She's gorgeous. Yes. Uh, and I love as well, like, so the English title is Golden Marie, but the actual, like, proper translation of Cusk Door is Golden Helmet. Because of her blonde hair. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, that's funny. But you can't really call her, like, golden helmet. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so what, what was your take on, uh, like, jumping in, I guess, the initial reaction with this one? I definitely found Castor to be a lot easier to follow than the second film. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, <clears throat> no, I did like the, you know, the romance of it, the dark underworld um, going on, the beautiful photography in it. Um, but yeah, for me, what stood out is just the, the slapping. Was oh, yeah. Slapping. oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that's the, that's the thing with like gangster movies around this time. And like, obviously this is a period piece that's set at kind of the turn of the century. So even a lot more flippant violence towards women then. But yeah. um, yeah, even in like the, you see it a lot in the American noirs as well. Like, you know, Humphrey Bogart slapped a lot of women in his time. Yeah. <laughs> like, it was just, it, it's a weird thing that does not translate to modern day of like, this is what makes a man macho. <laughs> yeah. And for me, the scene at the beginning where uh, we meet Manda and then uh, he meets his old friend Raymond. Mm-hmm. Correct me if I get the names wrong. Raymond takes um, Manda over to the table and introduces him to all the men. Mm-hmm. And then sits down and then the, you don't need to meet the women or, you know, their oh, names yeah. or anything. Well, it's not, I think there's also the added thing of, like, they are, like, Raymond is, it's like, oh, shit, my, my old buddy Mando is like, being released from prison. Um, I'll introduce him to the gang, gang that I run with now and don't worry about our prostitutes. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's kind of... I remember the women as they walk in, <clears throat> it's like... Oh, the damn prostitutes are out again. And I'm like, oh, that's not a nice thing to say. And I'm oh, no, she's right. Yeah, but that's what's crazy about this one. Because it starts, like, you know, you hear, like, it's a 1952 French period piece. So, like, you're like, okay, this is going to be... And it opens with, like, beautiful music and a scenic ideal, like, people with a rowboat yeah, going yeah. up to, like, have a drink at the riverside. You're like, yes, this is exactly what I imagined this would be. And then it's like, oh no, these are guys are gangsters and they're they're prostitutes. Yeah. It it like subvert. It takes like what you would that initial expectation of a period romance film. And it's like, but nope. No. Yeah. <laughs> like instantly, which is like pretty awesome. Yeah, and it's funny because I guess um, they're they're companions as well. They're not just their nighttime flings or whatever. They're... No, and I think like they all they kind of work under. Felix, the like the kind of overlord, um, played by Claude Dauphine, like he's he's the kind of 
you know, crime boss of this area in Paris, I guess. And so the gangsters and the prostitutes work for him. And yeah, he, he kind of is just like the... He's like the Don, yeah, essentially. Yeah, the Don. And you were saying before that Felix is the girl's pimp. Because that's, that's what I think. I, I got the impression that, like, you know, he... He kind of has his hand in everything. No dirty pun intended. <laughs> and I felt bad um, saying that. <laughs> and Roland owns Marie. Well, they're actually boyfriend and girlfriend initially. Uh, and Or, like, you know, they're, they're kind of together. Yes. And then Marie catches uh, Manda's eye in, like, an amazing scene where it's at that kind of early on where they're at the, like, Riverside Bar or whatever. And she's, like, dancing with Roland, but she cannot take her eyes off of Amanda um, that continually, like, being swirled around. It's like, nope, looking at you. Nope, looking at you. Nope. It's yeah, great. yeah, yeah. I love... I've got to mention the dancing, though. It was the most awkward dance. Well, okay, I had something about that in the trivia. It turns out uh, Simone Signoret was supposed to take dancing lessons um, in preparation for the film. It was just like, nah, I'm not going to do that. And just didn't do it. <laughs> and showed up on set. And so it was, uh, the actor playing Roland essentially is like lifting and carrying her around the scene because she doesn't know how to do it. God. <laughs> I wonder how she did that. Ah, uh, she's lazy. Yeah. No, she was actually away on set. Um, I found that kind of interesting. Um, I believe she was in a relationship with Yves Montand, like the big French actor. And he, at that time he was away shooting, um, the Clouseau film Wages of Fear, and she didn't want to like be away from her new kind of lover. Mm. Yeah. So she missed out on the dancing classes. Pretty much, yeah. And it shows. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mm. But that's the thing, like the like this film, like instantly, you know, the, the subverting its ex- the expectations of what the film's going to be in that opening, and then s- the very following scene, like you know, we're, when we're introduced to every single character their relationships, where we're going to end up, essentially. Like, it's just, it's an efficient movie, is, like, the mm. note that I had. Like, it's hour and a half, but it fucking gets its job done. Yeah, <laughs> I know what you mean. That's what I probably, I mean, like, I, I found it much easier to follow than the second film, mm. which I did not find easy to follow. Um, yeah. I, I just, I don't know what it was. It was the... Just everything about this film, I, I, it was that little bit of... I know it sounds contradictory to me just saying it, it fucking moves, but it it took me a little bit to get into it. And I think it was once the relationship is kind of really established between Marie and Manda and the sense of, like, where he's... He doesn't want to be part of the gang. Like, you know, he has an in for there, and he's just like, nope, I have no interest in that. I've been to jail. Although I do love this woman. Mm. And so it's like that whole like trying to separate. It's almost that Romeo and Juliet thing of like separating yourself from like the Empire. But still wanting to have the love kind of thing. Mm. Um, And once that all kind of kicks in and we have the knife fight with Roland. That's I'm like this movie has me now and I can't not look away. Um, And I think it is in large part to the cinematography. It is beautiful the way his character. It's like a stark contrast to Touche Power Grisby where... There's very little camera movement, whereas in this one, the camera is fucking floating everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) It is nary a still shot in this film. Yeah. Is there a scene where someone, like, the room clears and someone walks towards somebody Mm -hmm. else? Yeah, but I can't remember who or what happened in Mm. that scene. Um, But yeah, it's just the the way he's placing his camera and it's like, I I don't know if it's like a conscious decision, like, evoking that whole dancing aspect that the film starts and ends with, even, where it's like, well, our camera's gonna 
it, because essentially at the core of this, it's a love story, and it's, we're making a romance film despite it being set in this dark world of gangsters. So we're going to really go for the romantic camera movements and make it constantly kind of shifting and twirling and panning and everything, as opposed to just static, 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 static to heighten the kind of intense drama which Tushke Power Grisby kind of does. Mm. Um, and that kind of also follows through with like the, the sound design and stuff. Like both of these films, it's very stark in its music and things. Mm. And like the, the knife fight between, you know, Roland and um, Manda when that kind of comes to a head, it's the, all you have is the sound of a barking dog. Yeah, that really stood out in my memory is that scene. I remember that fight was so awkward. Yeah. Could you call that a fight scene? Like, but, but it was also like, that's kind of probably how that would go. Yeah. Just like two guys awkwardly wrestling and then one of them gets stabbed. Yeah. The end. <laughs> it's so interesting how um, Manda's character goes from zero to hero, doesn't he? he yeah. I'm not in, I'm not in, I'm not in. But for Marie, I'll, yeah. Yeah, which kind of uh, like is my takeaway on like what the film's essentially saying like both of these films kind of have similar thematic ending like you know what what they're discussing Tragedy, like, tragedies yeah yeah and this one it's essentially like highlighting the lengths that men will go to for the sake of a, a pretty woman and, and like a like i mean you obviously with sake of Manda and stuff you extrapolate that to like no he legitimately loves Marie, but at the beginning, it is just like, I saw you once at a thing, so I'm going to kill a guy for you. Yeah. And Roland being like, I'm, you're disrespecting, and then the lengths that it then goes with Felix, how he fucking, like, double crosses, puts Raymond in jail, like, you know, to to get Manda out of the picture, so he can then, it's not even a matter of love, it is, it's, that's what's so interesting, it's, Felix just wants to have sex with her. (laughs) Like, he doesn't want, he just, it's almost that thing of... So, when Raymond, when Roland, sorry, to me, ours, when she was with Roland, Roland was one of, like, my gang members. He was under my control, so therefore Marie was under my control, I yeah. guess. And you get the impression that they've had, you know, stuff going on in the past, because she mentions that his hair's parted in a new way, or he's mm. parting his hair a different way. Yeah. Like, oh, so these two are familiar, they're close. Um, so maybe when she was Roland's girlfriend or whatever mm. you want to call it they yeah like you're saying he still had power over her and yeah they could continue their relationship and what the second that that's all gone and like she essentially skips town with manda it's just like well because i now can't have that thing i'm gonna have to flex my masculinity and my power to get that control back mm. and then it just fucking snowballs into an absolute calamity clusterfuck yeah <laughs> yeah totally mm. It's, but I think, like, it's the little moments that make it, that made me really connect with it, where it's like, a lot of these films around this time, like Touche Power Grisby in particular, like, it is soundstage sets, Mm. very insular, very enclosed, whereas this one took its time to take us out of the gangland streets of Paris, and we're like, no, we're going to go to the countryside. Mm. We're actually going to go out into the real world and let you fucking sea green and blue sky and stuff. Yeah. Um, it, as short as that was, but, like, that little segment, but it works to then also be like, hey, these guys actually, like, you know, to personify, like, that they actually care about each other, we're going to take them out into a romantic yeah. kind of sojourn. I um, love that bit where she tickles his ear, Manda's ear, with the grass, and then when he opens his eyes, she's like, Rah! Oh, yeah. For glowing. It's like, bomb. and the weird music of, like, <laughs> 
was like, is she gonna murder you? <laughs> and then they go hang out with Mama Eugenie or whatever yeah. and having the coffee and yeah, apparently that caused a lot of controversy at the time because it was like, oh, you've shown two people in bed post-sex. Like, that's... No, 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 no. <laughs> Do you know what? I <laughs> I called out in the middle of that scene, boo! Because I'm like... You want to see some titties? <laughs> yeah, you got us all riled up and now we don't get anything. But mm-hmm. I guess, what was this rated at the time? Um, I be- I'm actually not too sure. Like, the rating system back then was all kind of... It'd be rated pretty hard, I imagine. And like you're saying, like I watched that scene and I didn't even I wouldn't even bat an eyelid now, but mm. yeah. Back yeah. then seeing two people post sex. <laughs> yeah. Um IMDB is being slow. Uh PG. Well that, that's what it says now. But like I don't you know. You don't if know that what it is back then. <clears throat> um but yeah, and it's it it's such a simple and economic setup of like is which is probably why I evoked Shakespeare before, where it's like Guy want guy falls in love with girl, girls like you know the people in control of her don't like it. Therefore, we're going to fuck this guy over, mm. and then that goes, and then he gets revenge. Mm. That's the movie. <laughs> it's super simple. I love, love, love that scene where he escapes from the um, jail on his way to jail. <laughs> Um, it's the, the simplest thing. They just like push the guards over yeah. and run. <laughs> Why didn't more people escape at that yeah. time? Um, but then he goes to um, Felix's house and he sees the slipper. Mm. And then he just it's... sees Red yeah. and charges into the police house, grabs their gun, which is hanging by the door, because that's yeah. where you hang your gun in the police station. And then just follows this guy out, locks the thing, and just shoots him. <laughs> a lot a as lot. well, yeah. yeah. I thought that was badass. Not just that, but then, like, knowing fully well that he is going to fucking die for doing this. Like, he just is like, I don't care at this point. Yeah. Like, this man has disrespected me so much, and, like, you know, the woman that I love, that I've got to get revenge at any cost. And then... Which then leads to the, uh, like, amazing ending of this film, which is, like, wow. Like, what what do you even... Yeah. Like... I can imagine at the time being in the cinema, say you were, like, a young couple or something, and like, mm. or, like, if I was a young woman watching this at the time, I'd be, like, so heartbroken and affected by that ending. Yeah. And just the way that it is set up as well, the fact that you've got... Um, you know, the other gang member taking Marie to, like, this dodgy motel, and you're just like, where are we going? What are we doing? And then the reveal of the The prison yard and the guillotine and the cut of it, like, the blade coming down and then the look on her face. Like, the actual filmic technique behind that entire sequence is, like... Because essentially, you're like, the movie's done. Mm. Like, why is there still five... I was like, check the time. I'm like, why is there still five minutes left? I thought, everything's wrapped up at this point. What, What are we doing? And it's just this very different odd sequence that just kind of essentially punctuates and puts a pin like you know highlights the whole message of everything there (laughs) in such a unique bizarre way and then you know having that guillotine slam down and then the final shot of the film you have it's a long shot of Mander and Marie dancing and it's calling back to when they first met and like caught eyes they never got to dance together but now they finally get to and it's like Jesus Christ movie yeah Yeah. Hmm. Um, well, before we, like, I mean, that's, as we do with all these kind of doubles, we'll quickly kind of 
We're just going to quickly do each of these films, but before we move on, I want to uh, let's, let's talk about the performances. Like, we, we initially said, like, uh, Simone Signorette was um, uh, just a bombshell, but, like, in terms of her performance, I thought she was incredible. Yeah. Which scene stuck out for you as being... There was no particular scene in general. It was just essentially the way she carried herself in the whole film. Like she confidence, confidence while still having that like tinge of vulnerability. Mm. Like, um, but it was it, she's got a swagger to her. That she does while still being like demure. Yeah, I'm just throwing out adjectives. Yeah, <laughs> no, but I think that's a perfect description. Mm. And she's then made her interesting to watch. Yeah. And then um, Serge uh, Reggiani as Manda, I thought, was fantastic. He has the weirdest mustache. There's like this little anti-Hitler mm. in the like middle. Like a little boy, like, yeah. <laughs> with a mustache. Yeah. There was something about him where it was like this odd innocence. And apparently, yes. um, throughout most of his career, he kind of played thugs and toughs. And so it was like a conscious decision of like, well, we're going to cast this guy because of the reputation he has in French cinema, and we're going to kind of, again, subvert that and, like, make him the leading man and the romantic here. And I thought he crushed it, actually. Yeah. That's interesting. When you said he's mainly played thugs, I was going to ask, is his first time playing a thug? No, no. He, he was always, like, you know, th- you know, one of the henchmen or something. Like, yeah. never really a leading man, but he oh. was, you know. And then Claude Dauphin, like, the, as Felix... I think what what kind of made made me prefer this one over Touche Paul Grisby was the, the threat of the gangsters and the crime in this film. Like you've got Felix there, he cares about the little shit, like the the scene where he's shaving slow, slowly, methodically, and the rest of the crew are like, "We gotta go and do this." And he's like, "No, we don't." Yeah, yeah. It's he he's confident in his diabolical crime nature, whereas in the other film. It almost seems like these guys go out of their way to be like, this is who I am and how tough and things I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's an understatedness to the kind of, I don't need to fucking put on airs to let people know that I'm scary. Yeah. (laughs) There's that interesting part with him on the bike, though, with the other guy when they meet him in the country. Yeah. And it's interesting that you say that about him not putting on airs and all that. And he's just so low-key on a bike, you know. I don't know. And I think gangster, I don't think bike. Well, that's the thing. But but the but re- the scene is, yeah, him really, like, just destroying Manda with the news. Yeah, and, and completely setting up his entire plan to be like, yeah, you know your girl you're with right now, I'll fuck her. Yeah. <laughs> For no reason other than I want to mess with you. Like, yeah. it, it's not even messing. It's, it's a weird thing. It's nothing even personal against Manda. It's just his own egotistical, like, want for power. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I really liked this film. <laughs> yeah, I can tell. That's good. You you definitely got a lot more from it than I did, mm. but yeah. So like just uh, like summing up, I guess like it, it, overall, like would you recommend it? Like or it just didn't grab you? Um, probably not as much as you. I enjoyed listening to you like break it down though. I I enjoyed it. Yeah. Mm. But not probably not one of my favorites. So. Okay, I'm I'm intrigued to see how this one sticks with you. Like yeah. I, whether or not it, it like creeps up and grows on you or something, because mm. possibly. But um, do you want to hear a little bit of trivia about it? Sure. Uh, so the film is nominated for two BAFTAs, uh, best film from any source, and it won best foreign actress for Simone Signoret. Mm. Um, so 
Uh, it is based on a real Paris underworld incident that took place in 1898. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so it's based on the story of a real prostitute named Amelie Ali, uh, for whom two men fought, uh, Manda and Lecker. Uh, similarities between the movie and the actual facts include the name of the two men, the period, the environment, the basis of the story. However, the movie diverges in different ways, notably that Manda is a worker instead of a gang leader. Uh, he meets uh, Marie after Lecker instead of before. Uh, he's, he first fights with Roland instead of Lecker. Um, so, quickly just breezing through stuff. Uh, Amanda and Lecker die um, instead of being imprisoned and deported. Um, and turns out Amelie uh, afterwards, after all this weirdness, uh, settled down and married. <laughs> But, on it. but not before uh, she tried to get... Um, she apparently was one of Paris's most notorious prostitutes, which I just love that title. Notorious. <laughs> She's a notorious <laughs> prostitute. <laughs> um, but after the film came out, she sought to exploit the, the events that inspired the film um, by creating a stage musical version of the film called Casque d'Or et la Apaches, um, which was swiftly shut down by the police chief because he feared that it would actually... Um, incite gang violence again oh like because the gang still existed in the time and yeah i just thought that was like wait what that's so hardcore <laughs> yeah. it's not just that but she's like i'm gonna make a musical i'm gonna start a I musical know. about this the fuck? yeah yeah um juliana Duvier uh lobbied hard to get the directing uh job for this film but negotiations fell through uh, it was then offered to Yves Allager, uh, Jean Renoir, and Henri-Georges Clouseau uh, until it finally made its way to uh, Becca. So he was like the fourth or fifth choice to direct this film. Um, <laughs> good, yeah. good job on uh, the pronunciation, by the way, Chris. That's uh... French was like the one that I'm okay with. Because <laughs> you're Canadian? I think so. <laughs> yeah, probably. Um Yeah, the that, like that's what's interesting about this one. It like it being you know Becker being the like fourth or fifth choice to make this film. Um, it bombed when it came out, by the way. Wow. We, we haven't actually talked about any of that. It it tanked hard, both critically and financially. Um, and it seemed like with audiences, their main thing was um, Becker had all of his previous films were kind of really shining a light on modern day culture in. France and like the issues arising with that that when he made a period piece they just like rejected it mm. which is kind of shitty um and it's now like obviously gone on to become like a huge kind of cult crime classic so it's interesting because you know we, we've talked about that subject a lot about people going to see directors rather than mm. actors or, or types of films it's it sounds like um you know well that's not what you do as a director so we're so, gonna uh, shun yeah. it yeah, yeah. You, you, they're pigeonholed into like, yeah. yeah, that's not what I expect from you, so therefore it's bad. Mm. It's like, no, let, let, I, yeah, I loved this movie. Um, yeah, literary critics at the time were outraged by the fact that Becker chose to emphasize atmospherics at the expense of psychology. So instead of like dealing with like the hows and the whys of the criminals, he was just like, no, I'm just going to make a really great mood piece. Mm. And they were like, but that's not what you do with a film. Like, we're used to the very blunt crime noir films out of America and things of like, you know, you state everything that is going on. Um, so nevertheless, uh, Becker's approach had a profound, uh, profound, a <laughs> profound uh, effect on young filmmakers that would later go on to form the French new wave 
and Ooh. helped uh, change the face of French cinema. Wow. So, uh, in particular, uh, Francois Truffaut, who was a massive admirer of Becker, um, particularly praised the film's final scene. Um, and I've got a... Uh, he actually wrote the introduction to the published script for this movie. And uh, he wrote... If you're at all interested in how stories are constructed, you cannot fail to admire the ingenuity of the plot, particularly the strong, oblique, unexpected way it gets abruptly to Manda's execution in a scene that is as beautiful as it is mysterious. As Marie arrives in the middle of the night at a disruptible, disreputable hotel, um, when I or any of my fellow scenarists are in trouble, we often just say to each other, how about a cask door solution? That was pretty pretty awesome. Um, so is that so? There you don't know what's coming. There the scene plays out, and then you're like, "Oh shit!" This is what this was, yeah. and just cut to like. I guess again, I'm doing like bad, like pun intended. Cut to the chase of like what it is. <laughs> um, yeah, and British film critic. This is another quote about the ending. Uh, Roy Arms wrote: "Becca shows us all the hurried ugliness and squalor that surrounds the guillotine." So that we feel the execution to be an affront to humanity. <laughs> so it, it's like not glorifying it or making him a martyr. It's just like, no, this shit's bad. Yeah. Like not putting it in any good light. I love that it's a guillotine. For some reason, I thought they'd hang them. Yeah, that's what we're so used to, right? Yeah, and yeah. It, like, yeah, and then, um, or in American films, like the electric chair or something. Yeah, but it's, yeah. It's fucking brutal. Ooh. Just that shiny blade sliding down. Yeah. Yeah, it's, full on. And it's so quick and abrupt mm. yeah uh this was uh becker's favorite of his own films um and mm. it was the only one of his films to have a uh, wide international release um and this one i had to throw in as the i've got to add some fantastic trivial trivia it's been a while uh singer eustace wayman was so taken with simone cigarette's performance in this film that she adopted her name as her stage persona Nina Simone. Oh my god, I love Nina Simone. <laughs> That's why I had to put that one in there. Oh, rad. <laughs> yeah, so like she was a big fan of this film, in particular Simone's performance, and yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Cool. Yeah. Uh, so I'll quickly go into the Criterion edition, still in print from Criterion as a one-disc DVD. It comes with an audio commentary by film scholar Peter Cowie, a 1995 video interview with actor Serge Reggiani, a 1963 interview with actress Simone Signoret for the French television program Cinema Paranormal. Uh, excerpt from an episode of French television series Ciniste du Notropes, uh, dedicated to Jacques Becker. Rare, silent, behind-the-scenes footage of Becker on the set with commentary by film scholar Philip Kemp, as well as the usual booklet and essays that Criterion usually do. I'm out of breath. Let's move on. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, like, wrapping that one up, I, I really dug Cask Door. Uh, highly recommend. Lee, meh, meh. <laughs> I definitely preferred it. Okay. To the second one. <laughs> well, well, let's dive headlong into uh, Touche Power Grisby, which we just got finished watching. Yes, that's why I call it the second one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, but also, like, the time we're recording, like, we literally just finished watching. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, this is an interesting one. Especially coming off of how much I dug Cast Door. This was, yeah. It's interesting what you were saying about the critics and how uh, Cast Door bombed and therefore why it bombed. And it's almost like for all the reasons why it bombed, this is then this film is all those reasons. Yeah. He, Straight he, to the point, it's all psychology. Although it does have a lot of atmospheric it moments. Does, it does, but also not in the same 
way. No. It's it's not not in the same way to emphasize what Castor is emphasizing. And I must say that though that's the part that got me. It mm. was scenes that had conversations that were about for the whole scene 10% of the scene is conversation and then the next 90% is people getting up opening a cupboard looking through a window getting a toothbrush brushing their teeth getting out pajamas handing pajamas to their friend yeah it's totally like in opposition to cast all where it's like instead of atmospheric it's like we are going to dive headlong into the psychology by showing you everything that these people do Mm. To get you to get give you a sense of who they are, why they are, what their relationships are, how they act, as opposed to just like presenting a thematic story and idea and just letting that kind of evolve naturally. There were some moments for me. I don't know if you call it atmospheric, but um, when um, I'm jumping ahead, but when um, Max approaches Josie towards the end, mm-hmm. with the shadow over her. Oh, incredible! Incredible. So beautiful. Yeah. Like, you just know exactly how she's feeling and what we're meant to feel as the audience. Oh, and like He's the imposing ins- over the... Like with the weird Peter Pan shadow. <laughs> almost, uh, like onto it. Um, before we get much further in, I'll quickly do the plot synopsis. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, Jean Jabin is at his most warily romantic as aging gangster Max Lamenteur in Jacques Becker's gem, Touche Par au Grisby, which translates to Hands Off the Loot. <laughs> to know what it, what that meant. <laughs> Exclamation point. Hands off the loop. Uh, having pulled off the heist of a lifetime, Max looks forward to spending his remaining days relaxing with his beautiful young girlfriend. But when Riton, Max's hapless partner and best friend, lets word of the loot slip to loose lip, lipped two-timing Josie, that's a lot of alliteration, <laughs> Max is reluctantly drawn back into the underworld. A touchstone of gangster film genre Touche Par Grisby is pure is also pure Becker, understated, elegant, and evocative. Um, but anyway, back just getting that out of the way, jumping straight back into where we were. Yeah. Oh, well, we can start at the beginning. I think um, what I struggled with was what's going on, who's who, and what is this film about? And it took a very long time. Oh, I don't know when we found out about the loot. Uh, it's, it's about... 45 minutes okay. in. Yeah. You know, that's what's interesting about it is this structure behind it is once you get to like the third act of the film, it, it makes the f- first two acts, everything falls into place to some degree where you're yeah. like, I get why we went through all of those that, emotions. Yeah. It, it's like the thing in retrospect where you're like, you can be kind of frustrated trying to understand, wait, so what's going on and why are we doing this? Yes. And then by the time you get to the end of the film, you're like, oh, that was because of this. And yeah. it doesn't necessarily all the time make for a great viewing experience, though. No. No, no. I found myself quite confused at who's <laughs> who and what's going on. And I think as well, like, the cast door, like, had a, to its advantage, only had had a relatively small cast of characters. There's maybe five or six people that were centred on. Whereas this one, it's, you know, we have our three or four mains, but then it's also, like, four or five girls that all look the same. Yeah. <laughs> and then four or five, like, henchmen that all look and sound the same. Same, yeah. And it made it a bit tough. And no one really says each other's names. Yeah. And it, it makes it a bit tough to kind of latch on. As I'm kind of, I'm glad that we watched it together so I could ask you. So who's that again? <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, and it's one where... Unlike, it's not as sharp and fast-paced as 
past or it's taking its time to really let you understand who Max get into the psychology of Max, I guess. And you know, there's it's how many times do we need to know that he is a cool motherfucker? Yeah. Yeah. And what, what were we saying? He, he's a loyal man. He's been friends with Raton for 20 years, we find out. And uh, same, same with Fats. <laughs> same with Fats. And he, he's a loyal bad guy. Loyal crook. Yeah. And the, you, you, yeah, you coined like the great term where you're like, he's a lovable asshole. Yeah. Because he's a, he's a bit of a dick to everyone. Yeah. So we get that little snippet from... Fats having a conversation about him and then Fats has one of the other henchmen there, I don't know which one it was, and um, they have he they call on Max to um, settle an argument or uh, what do they call referee an argument mm. for them. So he's you know, we get the impression that even though he's old and he's had enough and he wants to retire, he's he's a good guy and he's loyal and all this. But then for the rest of the film we listen to Max um, just shoot down his friends like the way Call he him talks. Call shithead and like <laughs> dumb bitch, yeah, knucklehead. Yeah, yeah. Like everything, yeah. Yes. But it's it's that thing of like it's you can't tell for quite a while if it like you you assume it's out of love as well as yeah. but also frustration. Yes. Like he that's what's interesting about him as a character is he views himself as so much better than everyone around him and the situation that he's in and the life he's chosen. Yes. Like he's at the bar, like complaining about like the old guys who are dancing with the young showgirls and how embarrassing that all is. You, you know, they should have some class and some respect like me and go home. Cut to he's dating a 20 year old. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. He, but I guess it's that thing of like, well, no, I take her out for lunch. I don't wait for the showgirl to finish her shift and blah, yes. blah, blah. It's the weird level of the, like, hypocrisy to him, but also it's almost that weird way of him making fun or pointing out the, the the falsehoods or, like, the issues with these people is also, like, him reconciling with himself, yeah. I guess. And he's fed up and he's had enough and he wants to, what I imagine, retire. Yeah. Well, that's the whole thing and that's what's interesting is, like, the first 40 minutes of the film is... Essentially, we're watching a criminal that is retired. Yeah. But we don't necessarily know how or why or what he's, how long he's been doing it or what level. Yeah. Like, yeah. And then the loot stuff kind of comes in and, like, with Josie dump two-timing and, you know, it it's very convoluted. It, it's based off of a novel and it very much feels like it. <laughs> yeah. Where it's like if you were reading the story, you'd be like, oh, yeah, I, I, I got what's going on, whereas... As it's presented in the film. Eh. Yeah, nah. <laughs> but those moments of awesomeness do pop up, like the scene where he goes to confront Josie and Lola. Um, I loved the scene where he evades the two of, um... Oh, God, what's his name? Armando? No, Angelo. Angelo? Uh, two of Angelo's, like, the guys in the ambulance. And, like, he evades them, and, like, you know, with his, um... You know, the el- stopping them in the elevator and pointing the gun. Yeah, and that stuff. was great. Yeah. Yeah, these great little set pieces. Yeah, and I've got to mention all the costumes and makeup, and I just love anything from this time period. I thought the actresses were beautiful. I loved like all the set pieces and the the furniture and everything. It was a beautiful looking film in that way. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we totally need to talk about the um the the shows as well. The shows. Like the the, the dance at the beginning, the <gasps> oh. showgirls. 
<laughs> we were having a good giggle at the showgirls because I think, um, you know, we've seen like, I, don't know, I can't even think of something like strippers, <laughs> you know. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, like, like gyrating. Yeah, yeah, you think of like sexual. actual showgirls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or something yeah, like yeah. even like Moulin Rouge to yeah, some degree. Yeah, like something really show-stopping and big and and I just died. I loved the like the little French showgirls with their... They're medium kicks. It's not even like a high kick. Yeah. And just like, oh. And they're all slightly out of sync See, with each other. What did you call it? It's like a school recital. Yeah, it's like <laughs> it's like high school level production. <laughs> but with nipple tassels. Yeah. And this one, I think you did mention the rating during. Yeah, when, when I was doing, prepping the trivia and stuff, it was, um yeah, I noticed that it was rated X when it first came out. So, and that's obviously because there's some nudity in this and a shitload of violence in the last half. In. Yeah, definitely. It's interesting because the dancers are wearing nipple coverings, but then in um, Fats's office, there's actually nude images of Yeah, like big behind him, yeah. But at no point is anyone actually acting nude. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, I get you. I don't know if that's a... No, no, no. But that's... I I wonder if that is like a little loophole that they were kind of... It's like, well, it's not actually live nudity. It's it's like, you know, a picture of nudity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And again, similar to... Um, cast door, you've got like, you know, scenes of naked people in bed after having sex, which is like very, mm, you can't do that at the time. Yeah. There um, was only one scene well, of that. Yeah, right? Max with his um girlfriend. With yeah. his other girlfriend. This is where I got confused. So yeah, you were was... like, who is like, yeah, there was too many because there was him with the his what? uncle's secretary. Yes. Um, And then... Him with Lola at the beginning, the blonde one. Yeah. And then... Um, the woman who ends up being his actual girlfriend, I think Betty. Betty. Yes. That scene for me, that Betty scene, I was like, who is this? And what are we gaining from this scene? But that's, that's what's interesting because like we, because we were debating like, wait, is this someone we've seen before? We don't know. And then it's like, no, it turns out she is his girlfriend and like the idea that he's, you know, groping Lola, he's making out with his uncle's secretary, who's also his girl, like the uncle's girlfriend you see later in a weird scene. Oh, he grabs her tits at the beginning and I'm like, ugh. Yeah. <laughs> but that is like, the, I guess it's, it's completely in setting up the fact that he is everything that he's pointing out is wrong with the gangster, yeah. the genre and like, you know, the people he's making fun of. He is that to a T yet yes. he can't see it in himself. Yes. Which is like at the very end of the movie when it's like he's back at um the uh, Madame Bouche's store and they're just like, they're like, how do you do it? And Max, you got the lovely young lady in blood. He's like, yeah, I got my tricks. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, this was one, because <laughs> like people fucking love this movie. And do they? Yeah. And I'm, I was trying to understand like wh- what and why, like why does this connect with so many people and I think it's I think it's because it is unlike something you'd seen from that time before like where it went in terms of methodically setting up the characterization and the psychology and then also where it went in terms of the violence and things yeah I was actually wondering that when I was watching it had this sort of thing happened before yeah um to this level Hmm. yeah like from this, from the second day he shows up at Fats's place, and it's just like, all right, we're we got to get someone, you know, Angelo's fucking me over. We got to go get my loot back, and he's like, I'll get my tools, <laughs> like you know, and he like they're building the guns, and you know, Fats's wife comes in and is just like, the fuck, goddamn it, I thought you guys were done with it. You're just like, 
Okay, this is a movie now. Yeah. Like, not that sounds dismissive, but you no, know what I, I mean. No, I know what you mean. Um, and then, you know, you've got fucking car chase and shootouts. And, like, it goes hardcore schlock. Mm. But this is almost like pre-schlock. Yeah. Yeah. That would be super exciting. It was super exciting for us to watch. Yeah. I was loving that whole ending. Yeah. Well, not the ending, but the chase scene, the high swap. Yeah, and, like, shooting out the windows and the old-timey machine gunning at each other. And then, yeah. like, the post-World War II grenades where it's like, you have to hit them down and throw. <laughs> and then Angelo blows himself up. Ah, this is fucking awesome. Like, that's the thing. Like, this is it's by no means a bad film, but it's just, I guess, didn't connect with us. Yeah. There were long scenes of not a lot going on. And confusing. Yeah. I think for me that's the main thing. I was pretty confused. Yeah. Where where are we going? I wish I'd read something before watching it because I feel like I would have had a direction. Yeah. From uh, the beginning. In terms of like just even a simple plot synopsis of yeah. like what's going I on. I went into this cold. Yeah, as we usually try to do. Like, yeah. And you know. I was struggling to follow what was going on. In saying that though, there was a little note here which I loved, which similar to um, the shadow scene, which I was talking about with Josie before, the scene like that where the camera moves through the hutch, yeah, and uh, looking through the showgirls, like, like you were saying, actually the the camera was quite static through this film, mm. but then there were a few like oh, few moments, and there was like the one where he goes up to first time he goes up to Fats's office, the camera kind of follows him up the stairs and then shifts around to like reveal the double doors and things like yeah, it it shows its moments very carefully when to you when to move the camera yeah but for the most part it is pretty fucking static do you think he was trying to restrain because of cast doors feedback i don't know like um i was listening to a podcast today and they brought up a great quote from francois truffaut where it's essentially every filmmaker's most recent like every new film from a filmmaker is in direct response to their previous film Hmm. that was something that truffaut said so he's like the reason I make the choices and make the film that I make next is in direct response to what I, the piece of art that I just made. Okay. And I, yeah. So I guess to some degree it kind of has to, it whether has it's, to be. but I think it is almost that possibly going back to like, instead of cast or being like, Hey, we're, we're set, we're doing a crime film, but it's not a crime film. This he's going back to. This is a straight gangster movie, and so we're going to use the tropes of that with lots of harsh lights and shadows and static camera work. And not to say that the framing within that's bad or in the cinematic language, it works well, but it's it's different. Like it's you know, it's not as evolved, I guess. Not as engaging as well. Yeah, because and then like you see where the gangster films would eventually go. Like I mean, I'm about to bring you up in a second, but. Martin Scorsese, like, he doesn't need to rely on the tropes of the crime and gangster genre to effectively tell a crime and gangster. Like, his camera moves like a motherfucker. Yeah. Like, he's not relying... Ignore the cat in the background. (laughs) Uh, He's not relying on, like, static shots with, like, harsh shadows falling onto people. He's, you know, evolving beyond that. Yeah. Um, he's a, he's he's telling the story not just with his characters and dialogue. He's telling it with his yeah with his camera yeah. Whereas this is a bit more of a formulaic presentation of that. Do you know what I found really jarring? The sudden voiceover in one scene. Yeah, just one scene. That was odd, and I guess that is again like. Well, we gotta you know I cop shit for not going into the psychology of it. So yes. let me flat out have Max. <laughs> 
monologue how he's feeling. Yeah. 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 And it really goes against the character that they try to establish at the beginning. He's a whiny bitch. Yeah. <laughs> he's bitching at everybody. Very thinking kindly about um, his friend Raton. He, he then maybe, doubles back. He doubles yeah. back on that eventually. But I think maybe he's just, that's him trying to be tough and, and not deal with what was actually going on and yeah exactly get emotional or something and i mean i guess he's just pissed off that he's being dragged back into the underworld that he'd fought so hard to get out of yeah i'm just trying to remember back is that the scene where he's in bed with betty and he (laughs) no it's just before that just before it's just before that yeah okay because I'm like, that would give that scene uh, the, the, the post-sex with Betty scene is when he goes back and is like, oh, I shouldn't have thought yes, about yes, that yes, with Raton. Yes, yes. Yeah. And then he's just like, I gotta go. <laughs> gotta get my revenge. Um, so I brought up Scorsese just before, and I found this while doing the research. Um, that apparently uh, the, there's a video online of um, Spike Lee interviewing Martin Scorsese about The Irishman. Because um, they just both made movies wow. on Netflix and things, and uh, Scorsese said he screened Touche Par or Grisby with his cinematographer Rodrigo Pietro. Uh, Scorsese said, uh, "When I was shooting uh, De Niro in Casino, I felt he was in. T- he was in. I felt he was taking on the stature of a late to middle aged Jabin. Uh, he had a lot of power to him, but he was also he also had a serenity to him and a coolness." Bob, I felt, was getting that way in Casino. Grisby has a similar theme in the sense that it's older gangsters in Paris and they're getting involved in stuff that they don't want to get involved with. It's, a, it's really the tone. But I like Jabin feeling, uh, feeling of his deportment, uh, how he presented himself. In fact, uh, we use some of the harmonica music in, of Grisby in the film and Robbie Robertson did the harmonica based on the French noir music of the 1950s. So Scorsese was very much obviously a fan. A fan, and I, I, what I, the fact that he's leaning so hard on Jean Jabin is, I think, the key point of this film, where it's like if it wasn't for Jean Jabin's performance, this would almost be a forgotten film. Mm. I think. I I I love that man. He's I've seen him a lot now <laughs> throughout the collection, but I think like yeah, it's. It's almost that kind of counteracting with um, Simone from Castor, where it's like a quiet kind of... They command the screen whenever they're on with doing so little. Mm. They've just got a gravitas behind them. Do you think... Um, I'm trying to think if the other actors, do they have big performances? Is that what juxtaposition like of them more quiet? Or is it just just them they're just I don't know I think it for me it is just Jean Jardin I think the the fact of whenever and I don't know if that's because I'm familiar with his work now or just like whenever he shows up on screen it's like watching a Robert De Niro where you're like well I gotta pay attention now Mm. there's just something about this guy on screen which I found interesting the fact that Scorsese leans on this film in particular though that performance for both The Irishman and um, Casino the idea of looking at older gangsters and to kind of get informed from that mm. yeah it's yeah it's not something you'd probably be um you know with gangster films you probably want more action more young but yeah the the old tired um gangster who's seen it all yeah it's an interesting choice i kind of am more interested in that story it's like what draws these people like what happens to these people after yeah. the life of crime dries up for them that's why i, I love the irishman like 
it was so such a sad fucking movie. So sad. Yeah. yeah. The fact that our narrator is sitting by himself in a wheelchair in a nursing oh. home, telling no one his story, is yeah. so fucking brutal. I know. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I think this this one, like maybe on a rewatch or something, I might dig it a little bit more. But it was just. Do you know what I think, for me, I, I've written down establishing shots, question mark, for oh, so yeah. long, like, I just didn't know where I was. And then the lady that worked in the cake shop would walk past in the back, and I'm like, oh, we're at the cake shop. Yeah. Um, we meet a batch of the, the, the gangsters at the beginning when... Um, Max walks in and greets everyone and then they're they're sprinkled maybe in the background a few times and then they're they're quite key at the end Mm. or something and it's yeah I I just I I felt very lost but you're right I reckon on a rewatch it'd be if it's influencing people like Scorsese and De Niro and like it's it's obviously you know but but like I said I think it's not necessarily the form behind it I think it's more the performance the performance and like the the subject matter that the film's dealing with, possibly. Yeah. Um, but not to say that, you know, like, we had so much fucking fun watching that ending and stuff. Like, it's there's some good stuff in there, but... I don't know. I th- yeah. And that thing as well, like, not going into this abs- knowing absolutely nothing about it, and you're, like, nothing. you're discovering it and figuring out what the story is as it goes. Yeah. Someone we haven't talked about was... Well, we have, but not really. Josie. I love oh, that Oh, yeah. Jean Moreau. Yeah. Yeah. She's... I just... I didn't connect the dots i know her as an older actress but um i was just like that jc actress is beautiful she's very pretty and you know and then you said oh well actually she's this person yeah she's a bit she'd been in a bunch of Truffaut films like 400 blows jules and jim and stuff i believe some godard as well she was like a big star of the french new wave mm. of the 50s and 60s so yeah and then uh went on to do modern some more modern films like little femme nikita and you know ever after and stuff like yeah she's great yeah, she's great. I but it, that's why I love, like, popping in these movies and you're just like, oh, like, we're watching the opening credits and I'm like, oh, shit, Jean Moreau is in this film. Like, yeah. knowing absolutely nothing about it. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. You get those little surprises that are nice. Mm. Um, I'll quickly do a little bit of trivia. There's not much. Um, the film won the Volpe Cup for Best Actor for Jean Jabin at the 1954 Venice Film Festival, where it was also nominated for The Golden Lion. Uh, and it's also included in Roger Ebert's list of great movies. That's it for trivia. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> Short and sweet. Um, quickly go into the Criterion edition. It's unfortunately out of print from Criterion. But if you're lucky enough to track down the DVD, it comes with a 2002 video interview with actor Jan- Daniel Kaushi. Um, except from an episode of French television series, Sinise de uh, Notre Temps, uh, dedicated to Jacques Becker, featuring screenwriter uh, Maurice Griff, Grisby author uh, Albert Simonin, actor Lino Ventura, and Francois Truffaut. 1972 interview excerpt with Lino Ventura, clip from a 1978 interview with composer Jean Weiner. Uh, we didn't talk about the music, but it was fucking great. It was that yeah. kind of... Sergio Leone, Nina Rota, like, uh, sorry, um, Ennio Morricone-esque. Yeah, um, mainly the... Harmonica. Harmonica, and then a couple of scenes with actual score. Um, but man, mainly that harmonica coming in and out, whenever the gold was shown. Oh, it was, it was great. It gave yeah. you a real, like, yeah, almost a western kind of feel to it. Mm. it was lovely. Mm. Um, yeah, so that's the Criterion edition. But uh, I guess that'll wrap us up for our Jacques Becker double feature. Yep. 
Uh, I recommend Castor. Touche par Grisby in terms of cinema history worth looking at. Yeah. Lays a hard pass on both. <laughs> <laughs> I did struggle a bit, yeah. Mm. That's fine. Well, we're going to take it a little bit easy for our next episode. Um, by the time... I think this episode's coming out on like the 30th or 31st of December. So, uh, in our next episode, we're going to do what we normally do. Look back at 2020. And just put the collection aside for a little bit and just chat about some movies we saw this year that we liked. Nice. Yeah. So, uh, tune in for that. Otherwise, uh, we're about to start rolling on our new set of commentaries for Patreon. Very exciting. Uh, yeah, we got our uh, animation trilogy coming up so yes are we revealing the first one? Oh yeah yeah let's go for it uh beauty and the beast yeah disney's beauty and the beast so <laughs> Bit i would jump and leap from what we just watched <laughs> yeah yeah so uh if you want to hear us uh head on over to patreon.com slash the criterion quest uh, it helps us pay to keep the show going and you know pay for server costs and all that bullshit so we appreciate any support um otherwise you can send us an email at the criterion quest at gmail.com uh find me on twitter at Criterion Quest, like, subscribe, smash that like button. Bleh. <laughs> I'm so bad at like doing all that yeah, stuff yeah, at the yeah. end and I hate it. <laughs> but anyway, uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, for this week's episode, I'm Chris. I'm Lee. And we'll uh, see you next time.